0: Welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. And today we are speaking with the University of Utah Political Science Professor Jim Curry. And uh, this is kind of a, we're recording on an exciting day. This is, uh, what is today? Wednesday, January 6th. And as it turns out, we are uh, going to find out if the Electoral College votes will be uh, counted and if, in fact, then all the steps through the presidential election will have been completed. And we hopefully then we'll be able to move forward. But uh, I, I want to start out, Jim, just get your impressions on what has led up to this point and, and where are we now and, and what do we have to, uh, you know, look for in the next, you know, I don't know, couple of weeks.
1: So we're finally in the final stages of our presidential election process. And I know that's, that's not something that most Americans are used to because most years we're used to this one day, election day in early November, and that's kind of it, and we don't have to pay attention to the rest of the process. But this year I think a lot of Americans have gotten an education in just how drawn out this is, where Americans vote in November, those votes have to be fully counted and certified over the subsequent weeks so that the Electoral College electors can be appointed and they can cast their ballots and send them to Congress. And now we're at the last stage, which is where Congress actually counts the ballots. Uh, Under the Constitution, the Congress is required to open the ballots sent by the electors, count them, and certify them, which allows Congress then to object to ballots that have been sent if they have reason to believe that they were not properly certified, that they were not properly conducted, whatever. Um, And we have specific rules, and this is something that's been done before. Democrats objected to the certification of ballots in 2016. We also saw objections forwarded in 2004 and in 2000. But to get to the stage we're at right now, as we're talking, where the House and the Senate have broken into separate sessions to debate uh, the, the objections to the certification of specific ballots, you have to have at least one House member and at least one senator support the objection, and that's what we've seen happen.
0: But in this way, we we, we know, and, and I'm sure Amy will kind of agree with this, we we pretty much expect it to go forward and and the votes be counted. Is that fair?
1: Yes. At the end of the day, unless a majority of both chambers agrees that the ballots should be tossed from any one state or any one ballot or any set of states, then they resolve back into their joint session where they were counting the ballots and they continue to count them.
0: Amy,
2: yeah. So one of the things I learned in the, the last couple of weeks is about this compromise of 1877 um mm-hmm. well where there were two sets of electors i guess and yes. I, I and i was confused at first because i know there were a couple of states that um the the losing side and it was the republicans in these in these swing states all they kind of had their own electors and they voted for president trump um but those were not recognized by the state government and that's why they're not disputed electors is that will you kind of explain that a little bit
1: yeah so in 1877 what you had was you had literally a disagreement within the state about um who the who actually won because you had three states that were still controlled by federal governments under reconstruction and they sent and there was no agreement within the state about who to certify so electors sent two sets of ballots one from the republican slate one from the democratic slate. This time around that's not the case every single state certified either Biden or Trump as their state's winner, those electors were officially appointed by the states and they sent official ballots to the Congress. So you don't have real competing uh, slates of electors and slates of ballots. That's why Congress has this role to some degree is if you actually have a situation where a state cannot certify their vote, they cannot certify a winner, then Congress gets to be the final adjudicant of who won and lost.
2: And so that's what they're kind of, that was the compromise is what people have been citing But having that explained a little bit better. uh, So there's no electoral votes that are in dispute. And I I heard a lot about, and and some of this was in the speeches from the senators today, that, that really the electoral college is on trial in this moment. And that there are people who think it's outdated and racist and we want to get rid of it. And there are people who think it protects uh, smaller states from becoming you know irrelevant to a presidential election or to a, a federal election so explain do you th- do you feel that way is the electoral college in danger if they if this gets ca- if we get carried away here
1: it's probably not in danger though it definitely helps those who want to get rid of it when they get to see just how kind of messy and insane this process actually is most years we get to ignore it so americans don't get that riled up about it we've had two elections in a row now one in 2016 where you had the what is happens to be an occasional outcome where you have a popular vote winner who loses the electoral college and now you have the situation this time where americans have had to actually watch the week-to-week month-to-month drawn-out process that is the actual Electoral College happen, where those sorts of things tend to make people less happy with it. But the only way you're going to get rid of it is if both parties overwhelmingly agree that they don't like it. Um, and I'm not sure you're in a position where both Democrats, most Democrats and most Republicans in Washington and in the states, would want to amend the Constitution to get rid of it.
0: Just a real quick question, I, and you've said this to me before. Why is that? It seems like to me that the general public thinks the uh, Electoral College is uh, you know, uh, an arcane... Idea that should be uh, uh, done away with.
1: I mean, there's a couple of reasons. One is that it's become a partisan issue because, in the history of this country, only one party has ever sort of been stung repeatedly by the Electoral College. The Democrats have repeatedly won the popular vote and not gotten the presidency. That's what happened in 1876, where Samuel Tilden clearly won a majority of the popular vote, and Rutherford B. Rutherford B. Hayes became president. Happened in 2000, happened in 2016. And so it's become a partisan issue where some Republicans, either voters or Republican elites, see the Electoral College as a benefit because it helps their party win. You also have these smaller states that oppose getting rid of it because they think it provides them with a political benefit. Now, all of that is arguable, but you have enough people, you have a political party and you have enough states who see value in the system for themselves or for their political interests where they're not super excited about getting rid of it. Now, if the public turned overwhelmingly against it on both sides of the aisle, you might see a move to actually get rid of it.
2: So I wanted to, if we have a, just a second, um, the the debate has actually been paused because uh, protesters have breached the Capitol. Oh, um, so we'll... Seriously? We'll, that will be taken care of. But I mean, I, I do want to, if I don't know how close we are to break, but... Um, I do want to talk about this idea of how we ever get back to normal governance. And I got is about it possible?
0: A, in, in about a minute and a half. Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, is it, is it, yeah. solve the world. No, but I just, I've just, i just been watching this, and I've just, it's, I'm terrified by it. And I just wonder, are we just going to have protests every election now?
1: I would say probably not. And maybe that's, maybe that's being naive. But, you know, we've had very contentious moments in American history before with protests, with really sharp partisan divides or really sharp political divides that maybe didn't fall along party lines, where it didn't last forever. You know, it's, I think it's sometimes hard to remember we fought a civil war, and it took a long time for the, the dust to settle on that, but it did. Uh, the late 1960s are not exactly a time period that I would call stable, given the amount of protests and the sharp political divisions that existed that just didn't exist along party lines then. But that kind of faded into the background as time went on. Um, that doesn't mean that what's happening right now isn't disconcerting and isn't serious. And with you know, with the nature of the protests in Washington DC, D.C. today, also you know, violent and dangerous. But it also doesn't mean that it'll necessarily be that way forever.
0: All right. When we come back, we'll continue that part of the discussion. Uh, we're speaking today with University of Utah political science professor Jim Curry. I'm C. Jamie. I'm Jason. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Live Mouth Project's Voices of Reason, Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson, and today we're speaking with University of Utah political science professor James Curry, and unfortunately uh, Amy uh, announced to us that we are having uh, political unrest in the nation's capital as uh, some American citizens have stormed the people's house because they are upset about uh, the electoral college process, and uh, we are all a little bit dismayed by that because this isn't how we're supposed to behave we are certainly not uh, living up to our creed as one of the greatest countries in the world that's that's for sure right now
2: well it, it kind of calls into question this whole peaceful transfer of power and you know i i thought this i've thought this the last like 6 or 8 years we talk a lot about the institutions of this government and how they you know they have have to have integrity and what i've learned is if the people don't have an integrity the institutions don't have any integrity and i guess jim one of the things i i I think I've studied more history in the last six or seven years than I have in my entire life combined um in because there's been this sort of divide and people alleging this is the way we've always done it or we changed it um do you just see us this is just a necessary part of evolution or do you see this as something um, you know an aberration?
1: Um, that's a really difficult question I mean. This is, I mean, it's a stress test on our constitutional system, and depending on who you talk to, some people would say it's done better or worse. My view of it is, like, the system has done well, because it's held up despite um, four years of a situation where you have somebody trying to push at every boundary of the political system and the constitutional system and the rule of law, um... This is the ultimate one, to some degree, where you have a candidate who refutes to publicly concede, even if apparently in private the president has accepted that he lost. He he doesn't want to publicly do so for whatever political purpose. But, you know, what what you said a minute ago, Amy, is is exactly right. Democracy requires that the people want it and the people uphold it, which means that they have to accept things that they don't necessarily like. And that's not just in elections, it's also in the legislative process. You have to accept that if the legislative process produces something, even if you don't like it, if it's now the law, it is the law. And you can object and peacefully protest and and so on and so forth. But when it turns violent, that's when the whole idea of civil government sort of starts to fall apart.
0: You know, when I, uh, this summer, when all these things were happening with uh, George Floyd and, and uh, a lot of the protests, I kept hearing, you know, that we, we want peaceful protests, you know, because... There, there was always this edge of uh, racism in that because they were trying to uh, somehow uh, intimate that uh, the people of color were the ones causing the violence when actually that wasn't true in so many cases, particularly here in, uh, in Utah. Now I am watching, if, if, if I'm trying to imagine if people of color stormed at the Capitol, what that would look like right now. Would there be well shelter in place and there they would, they, they would be a hue and cry and outrage. There would be violence going with, with uh, law enforcement, I believe, that would be just unbelievable. And yet, we are watching this happen now. And I, and I, and I, I feel so angry that uh, this kind of double standard exists, but I'm feeling more angry that we even have to have this discussion because people aren't willing to accept uh, the reality of our elect- uh, electoral process.
2: Well, I guess the other thing, Jim, is, um, What impact do you see this having? I know you said, you know, over time, the dust can settle. We've been through a civil war. We've had great divisions amongst us before. Um, Do you see anybody or do you see any, I mean, sort of what gives you hope that the dust will settle on this, I guess? Like, is there something in our leadership or something in our system that might help?
1: So what gives me hope at the moment is that a clear majority of the Republican Party is not interested in Going along with this gambit to overturn the Electoral College vote, if that's even the purpose, which there's a good que- There's a question to, to be asked about whether any of the members of Congress are actually trying to do that or objecting or if they just see this as the most advantageous political positioning they can make for their careers. Um, but a clear majority of Republicans, as long along with every Democrat in Congress, is a, not going to go along with this. And that can, over time, send a signal back to the public who may be following the lead of political leaders in their party or political leaders in the White House in these objections and in these protests and in this violence that this isn't the right way to go. And most people in the public are actually pretty heavily influenced by the political positions and the messages promoted by elites in the party that they prefer. So Democratic voters and Democratic citizens tend to go along with what Democratic elites say on issues for the most part, and same for Republicans. And so if you continue over the next subsequent few days and weeks and months to have Republican leaders in Washington and elsewhere denounce the kind of tactics that you're seeing today, especially the violent aspects of them, that could over in the long run turn most of the public against um, this type of behavior.
0: I wonder, do uh, leaders like McConnell, who is otherwise a a very reasonable person, I mean, you don't hear him, he doesn't yell, he's always pretty measured, but we we don't hear enough from, I think, uh, leaders like himself or others who uh, uh, carry a lot of sway in the uh, the larger uh, Republican Party and who are conservative leaders, you know, without uh, any doubt, uh, you know, denounce, this kind of behavior rather than kind of saying, oh, this shouldn't be done. We should go along with the process. There there has to be a a stronger response, I would imagine, for this to to take place. Well, you
1: have have seen McConnell denounce everything that's going on today. Mm -hmm. He did it in the lead up, and he did it today on the floor of the Senate, a pretty forceful denouncement for him.
2: Yeah, I I, I actually thought it was very compelling.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a signal that, you know, party leaders are generally – Hesitant to criticize their president in public, they'll do it in private, they'll communicate those objections privately to the president, but they tend to see it as not the right way to go to make these public objections, whether, you know, whether we agree or not. And that's true on both sides of the aisle. And that's because they know that their political fortunes are tied up in the fortunes of a president and their party. Mm-hmm. But you're seeing that fray right now where you have a large number of Republican elites in the House and the Senate who are not only not going along with this but beginning to increasingly denounce it in forceful terms. And these aren't, you know, milk toast Republicans. This is Mitch McConnell, this is um another, I'm now I'm trying I'm just grasping for some of the other names, but it's a lot of like the senior leadership of the Republican Party in the Senate who isn't going along with this. And that can be a helpful thing for the public to see that this isn't an issue where Democrats are trying to steal an election and Republicans are standing uniformly behind Trump as he tries to do, you know, stay in office and overturn this unjust vote that he keeps claiming has occurred. Um, That can help, but it, it doesn't happen overnight.
2: Well, and uh, you know, I saw, I heard an, a pretty compelling sentiment from uh, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. She said, you know, in like a hundred years, no one's going to remember who we are, but <laughs> but they'll, but you know, the thing that's it, the thing that matters is the republic, and that's what everybody serves. And I really feel like that um, it was lost for a while, and I feel like it's kind of been reinvigorated. I think there are people who are involved in the process, the electoral process, that political process in ways that were different. And I'm just wondering if there are some good things that might come of this that you see.
1: I think so. I think for the very reason you said that now people are more attentive. It's not as if people didn't, if States didn't pass laws that disenfranchised voters before, or if parties didn't play along at the margins to try to, you know, put their thumb on the scale with elections, these things went on, but people, it just, it didn't rise to the public consciousness, um, Now it has, and that's good because it can drive the public to be attentive to it. They can put it on the political agenda. It can potentially even lead to legislation that might make aspects of our electoral process or our constitutional system more sound. Uh, This is what we saw after the 2000 election, where clearly our voting procedures were inadequate in a number of states, and you had the Help America Vote Act pass in the next Congress, which instituted a number of reforms that made voting easier, more secure, Um, And those things, you know, a lot of the things passed then helped out in 2020 when we had to do an election during a pandemic and where we had what the government has told us was the most secure, safest, one of the best run elections in American history, despite all the challenges.
0: When we come back, I want to uh, move on to uh, the Georgia uh, Senate runoffs because there's there's just so much uh, political news going on right now i am just really excited but like there's part of me that wishes it was a little more calm but i gotta be honest with you it it does make me want to wake up and read the news every day so i kind of appreciate that uh with with amy donaldson i'm jason lee we're talking today with the university of utah political science professor jim curry we're back after this this is voices of reason back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, along with Amy Donaldson. I'm Jason Lee, today joined by University of Utah Political Science Professor Jim Curry. And I wanted to kind of make a quick switch here before we get back to uh, what's going on in D.C. is that um, the Georgia runoffs. So uh, we, we, we do know that at least one of the seats, uh, two incumbent uh, Republican senators uh, uh, have their uh, offices up, uh, Senator Perdue and Senator uh, was it Kelly Loeffler. Loeffler has uh, has lost. It is, it is She is going to be replaced by a man who is. is, is, um, This is kind of historic. He is the pastor of Dr. King's church, Mm -hmm. and uh, I I find that there there is something. What's the word I'm looking for? uh, Serendipitous or uh, poetic justice? There's there's something beautiful. Something beautiful about mm -hmm. that. And he is an African American man.
2: And he's the first African American man from Georgia to be in the Senate.
0: In the Senate. So. um, Mm That's that's one thing. But uh, his uh, on the other side, uh, Senator Perdue is being challenged by what is it, John Ossoff, mm-hmm. who uh, is it's, it's but it's very close, too close to call at this point, though. There is leaning toward uh, thinking that the Democrat is ahead, uh, but it's very by a slim margin. So I am uh, wondering, Jim, what do you what are your thoughts on what's transpired in Georgia?
1: It's it shows that even after President Trump has lost the presidency, he is still functioning as the most important factor in our political system, even in the elections, where this was continued to be what we saw in House and Senate elections during midterm races, during special elections, and even in 2018 and 2020. Um, it's it's sundry all about him, and Democratic voters and Democratic leaning voters in Georgia are still so motivated and riled up by. Putting Democrats in office is sort of a response to Trump that they've done what Democrats have been dreaming of for decades at this point, which is to make Georgia a state where they can win competitively statewide at every level. Yeah. Um, and that's huge.
2: Well, and what did you see, sort of, in the organization? I, I, I mean, I looked a little bit at. Um, I think it's called Fair Fight, the organization. Now they're trying to register voters, but I, I saw that um, the influx of uh, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, into Georgia has really changed the demographics there? Do you think that was impactful on the on the race?
1: Yes, it's a combination of what we've seen as demographic demographic change in states like Georgia and throughout the Sun Belt where you have minority voters, voters from other parts of the country moving into the urban and suburban areas in those states, which is tipping the balance because those are voters who are likely to be democratic voters, plus like really aggressive efforts on the part of political operatives like Stacey Abrams in the case of Georgia to get these voters registered. And then a really clear messaging from the Democrats, both both candidates as well as the parties and their affiliated groups, about what was at stake in this election for them, which was if you send these two candidates to Washington, Democrats will control the Senate, which will allow Joe Biden to nominate who he wants, pass more of the legislation he wants, Um, and, you know, get Mitch McConnell out of the leadership chair.
2: Um, Did you see that uh, Joe Biden's team, I mean, it's reported, I don't think Joe Biden has actually announced this, but that Merrick Garland might be uh, nominated as attorney general. What do you think of some of his
1: nominations? I love that one. That's, you know, (laughs) there's some poetic justice. Right, (laughs) right. Right. I mean, Merrick Garland is, 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 is eminently qualified for this position. So it's not just sort of like a dig back at what happened for now five years ago where Merrick Garland's nomination to the Senate was blocked by Senate Republicans. The um, oh, to the Supreme Court. to the Supreme Court. Court. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Um, but, you know, it, like it certainly serves as a reminder of, of what happened those years ago and what you can do if you control the Senate versus if you don't.
0: When we look at this, and in in my mind, you know, the Senate is, of the two houses, it's probably a bit more politically uh, and strategically uh, important. This would then be able to uh, give the Democrats uh, an opportunity for at least some time until, you know, the next uh, senatorial elections come up, that they they can control some of the judicial nominees, which to me will be Trump's legacy for for all the the kind of confusion and, and, you know, political bickering that's gone back and forth. He has done what so many others uh, predecessors were not able to do, and that is stack the uh, judiciary around this country, then the federal uh, districts with uh, conservative judges that will be around long after all of us are gone. I mean, we, we, for the next 30 years, at least, we will have uh, Trump nominees uh, in uh, the Supreme Court and in the federal uh, judiciary. And and to his credit, that that's what uh, his party wanted, and he was able to to deliver that. Now the Democrats have an opportunity to do something similar, though it remains to be seen how long they actually have this control.
1: Yes, and that's the real strategic importance of the Senate. In terms of passing policy and passing legislation, the reality in Washington is that 99% of the time you need bipartisanship to get everything over all the hurdles. But where nominations and appointments are concerned, the Senate is so crucial, especially now that nominations to judicial and executive posts, all of them are decided on a party-line basis. They're decided on a simple majority rather than subject to the same 60-vote filibuster threshold rules that legislation are. This means that Joe Biden can appoint his cabinet without having to worry about Republican objections. And with the sense of the courts, it means that he can nominate judges to fill court seats, Um, At every level, as they become open, it'll allow someone like Stephen Breyer, who's an 80 year old liberal associate justice of the Supreme Court, to retire with a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate in place that can put another liberal justice in his post.
2: And what do you think the chances of that happening are?
1: I would be surprised if Stephen Breyer doesn't retire this summer.
2: Um, so I've always been a fan of split government, um, at least I was in the '90s. Um, I'm not feeling that way as much lately. <laughs> um, w- when in throughout history has it been an advantage to have, um, have it, you know have it all three camps because it feels like it excludes 50 percent of the people in the
1: country? It actually makes far less of a difference than people think for policymaking. Um, we tend to, or there tends to be a narrative at least, that if a party can control the House and the Senate and the presidency, then they can do whatever they want. And if there's divided government, then they can't do anything. And neither of those extremes is true. Um, research that I've recently been doing and in a book that I recently have came out, uh, was my co-author, co-author Francis Lee. We, this is exactly what we look into, is like, when are the parties able to get what they want? When are they not? And we found that the rates of success on their stated agenda goals make very, very little, uh, or alter are altered very little between when a party controlled all of government and when they faced divided government. That essentially made almost no difference. Um, so, you know, it's it, to some degree, it's it's nice to have unified government because maybe you can do one or two more things than you would have been able to do under divided government. But you're also going to face a bigger backlash in the next election, where now everything bad that happens. For the next this is assuming john ossoff wins his senate race which it looks like he will that everything bad that happens will be placed entirely on the democrats feet and the 2022 midterm elections will be 100 percent a referendum on the democratic party
0: so that's one of those things you you, you uh have to be careful what you wish for because yeah. there's always going to be some backlash depending upon how things turn out and, and the decisions you're able to make politically uh they they can serve you or sometimes they can bite you in the butt
1: yeah and even things that are out of your control like sometimes things that happen with the economy have nothing to do with any right. governmental action um, divided government at least insulates both sides from taking all of the blame when something like that goes wrong but when you control everything um, you get to do a little bit more but you also are going to take way more blame
0: you're going to take more of the credit than you probably deserve and way more of the blame than you probably deserve and, and in right. the case of a pandemic there's nothing you could have done about it anyway
1: that's right, and there'd be nowhere to hide.
0: When we come back, we'll continue our discussion on what uh, the current political situation we have in the United States of America. This is, uh, this, this is something else. It's, it's to, in my mind, uh, it's one of the more interesting times of my lifetime, and I, I appreciate that part of it. We're speaking with University of Utah political science professor James Curry, along with Amy Donaldson. I'm Jason Lee. This is the Voices of Reason. Back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today, speaking with University of Utah Political Science Professor Jim Curry, and uh, Amy kind of wanted to uh, bring up a, a circumstance discussing kind of our our, our elected our electoral process and, yeah. and what, what we uh, should be looking for.
2: Well, and because I heard on the House, uh, one of the senators brought up that um, elections are local. Elections are the responsibilities of the states. And um, if, if, if the Congress overrules this or has, you know, doesn't accept the, the, vote, the electoral votes, then what they're doing is saying we're going to federalize the elections. And I just wondered, from your perspective, sort of some insight on that and pros and cons of having elections being run at a state level.
1: Right. Um, I mean, the big cons historically with having elections run by each state – was that you could have states disenfranchise huge swaths of voters or do other things to minimize the impact of different types of voters, and the federal government couldn't do anything about it. Um, this you know, this is what we saw with Jim Crow laws throughout much of American history. You had various other things that states would do in different parts of the country to bolster some people's voices and undermine others. Um, a lot of that was Fixed or improved upon with the Voting Rights Act and various other statutes and court cases that took place in the 1960s. Um, But the big benefit of having elections run separately by the states and then often separately by local officials within each state is that it makes it hard for someone to steal a national election. You can't just use national federal organs or federal institutions like Congress to steal the election. You would have to get... uh, election administrators and state officials from all over the country, from different states with different political leanings and different partisan affiliations to agree to go along to helping you steal the election and stay in office. And we've seen that as President Trump has you know put pressure on state officials, such as in Georgia, that it's not even a guarantee that members of your party will go along with what you want to do. It's one of the best safeguards we have against a president, getting into office and then using the power of the office to stay there, the fact that they have no, almost no control, a president has almost no control over elections for their own office through their office is one of the greatest safeguards we have.
0: But if you think about it, I mean, uh, oftentimes, and we've kind of seen this happen in, in uh, more recently uh, with uh, President Trump, they, they try to curry their influence uh, in those states so that they can, as best they can, uh, at least try to uh, influence uh, the, uh, the the outcome of those elections in, in
1: various states? They can try, but you can see that they typically fail. And to get enough states to go along with what you wanted to do, you would probably need states controlled by the other party to somehow, for some reason, help you steal the election. Mm-hmm. right? And so you would need Democratic officials in Arizona, yeah. for instance, to be like, yeah, you know what, President Trump, you're right, I want you to win instead of Joe Biden. Um, like, and that's just extremely unlikely Especially then when we see that Republican officials in Georgia Weren't even willing to help or go along Or even support the narrative That President Trump was putting out there About the election being unfair
0: How about that? Uh, I'm going to ask you about that the, the, the notion of that phone call And that you, you literally and, and you have on, he's, he's talking to fellow Republicans yeah. Who are telling him that Look, we did this as fair as we know how And sorry, Mr. President You didn't win
1: And this is exactly where our localized elections become one of the underplayed aspects of our separation of power system, that a local Republican elected official doesn't really benefit or not benefit much at all from whether or not the president likes him or whether or not he has an ally in an outgoing president of their party. It's not like a member of Congress where they know their political fortunes are tied up in this president. Local officials, it's very different because local elections tend to be far less partisan. So this is where we have so many things built into our political system that make it hard for someone to steal power and become an authoritarian leader. And it's really one of the best ones that it's really hard for a president to unduly stay in office.
2: I mean, but this is really just an incredible moment. I mean, I don't know. I, I have felt often throughout this that we've been. This is historic. This is historic. This is historic. Right. Every right? time we say that, right? But yeah. you know, I'm looking at, at Twitter, and there are reporters saying there are guns drawn in the in the House chamber. Um, I, I I didn't even know guns were allowed, uh, frankly. Um, They're not. <laughs> <laughs> but I I just I wonder. Um, and and you know, McConnell said this is the most important vote that he felt he would cast in his 36 year career. Do you feel like it's that grave? Is it that important?
1: It's. This is a big moment. Um, I think we'll remember this, or we maybe we won't remember it because we won't all be alive. But a hundred years from now, they it, this will be remembered. kind of the way that the election of eighteen seventy seven was remembered. It's so it's you know sometimes it's not something we talk about all the time. It's not the Civil War, um, but it was a big moment in American electoral history. It was a moment where the constitutional system almost collapsed, where you almost didn't have a president seated, and it's a similar type of thing where it's like this big electoral moment, this big, somewhat constitutional challenge, and it'll get resolved probably, you know, in in all likelihood, it'll be resolved with eventually the protesters being subdued, and the objectors in the House and the Senate being voted down, and Joe Biden will become president. But remember in this way of this, this crazy moment where things were going a little bit awry.
0: You know, I'm, again, as I say, I'm disappointed uh, hearing that there's somebody with guns, and I'm only imagining it is the Capitol Police probably with the guns. At least I'm hoping that's what it is. But the notion that our society has come to a point where we feel as though we, need, we, we, we become this banana republic, where we're storming the, uh, the, the people's house because we want change. And, and again, it's a small minority, by the way. This is not the entire country. But when people outside of the United States view this, they will think, what in the heck is going on in the U.S. of A.? And our, um, our credibility as leaders in the world has already been chipped away at over the last several years. At this point, we are giving it away by behaving so boorishly.
2: I guess I look at this moment and I have conflicting feelings. I feel really heartened by what happened in Georgia, how the, how the Republicans who voted and supported Donald Trump. I just heard um, a Pennsylvania senator who also supported Donald Trump and voted for him say that we have to vote to support the Constitution, we have to support, you know, we to do our jobs, we have to keep our oaths to the Constitution, not to the president. And so a part of me is like feeling very, a, a lot of hope in that sentiment, right? But I also feel this idea that people also feel like it's much more fragile than it was. And Jim, I just wondered also your thoughts on the fragility of this beautiful idea that we, you know, purport to try to live up to. <laughs>
1: I mean, I, I don't think it's any more fragile than it was. I don't think our constitutional system or our democracy is more fragile. I think it's always fragile. It's just when someone tests that, we get to see how fragile it is. But we also get to see how resilient it is. Where This is what you're seeing today. Um, despite the protest, despite the violence, despite the fact that you have certain members of Congress in the House and the Senate objecting to a vote that was clearly from all from all observation fair and well run uh, that those people are a minority and they will lose and you know Joe Biden will be sworn in as president as he was elected to do and that's that is ultimately a good thing that it's it's not necessarily it's it's not necessarily a sign of a strong stable political system that no one ever challenges it it is a strong of a sign of a strong, stable political system, that when it's challenged, those challenges are beat back and the system persists. And obviously the system gets scratched and dinged up, but at the end of the day, the system will persist in that sense, and that the Congress that we'll see in 2021 and the presidency that we'll see in 2021 will be what the people elected.
0: Listen, I want to say thank you to uh, University of Utah Political Science Professor James Curry for joining us today. Uh, A great discussion as always, Jim, and uh, I'll be interested in a, in a few more weeks. Maybe we'll talk to you again and see how this all is, is moving along, if, if it is at all. Join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about the show, please contact us via email at voramied at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at adonsports and at Jason Lee one. Our show's Twitter handle is at vorpodcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on, in all the places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We'd love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, along with Amy Donaldson, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of The Loudmouth Project.